Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kali. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kali, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kali. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Brian Schumel with TBM Multifamily. Welcome to the show, Brian. I appreciate you taking time today. Thank you, Scott. I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to this. Thank you. So Brian is with uh, TBM Multifamily. Their company insures uh, over 200,000 units all over uh, U.S., a lot of multifamily and different types of insurances. And insurance is such a near and dear topic to my heart. Uh, Personally gone through uh, a lot of fire and different claims. So having the right insurance and working with the right insurance broker uh, is an absolute key that I know uh, personally. Uh, And with your experience, Brian, we are looking forward to, you know, knowing the different uh, aspects of the insurance industry. And as we all know, with the COVID impact we are witnessing right now, Uh, You know, what are some of the takeaways all our uh, listeners can, uh, you know, adhere to uh, would be a valuable lesson. So thank you for taking time. Uh, With that, Brian, uh, give us some background as to, you know, how you came around in the insurance industry and help us get started the show. Yeah, I, um, um, I, you know, I came into the insurance industry, um, you know, in about the 2010 timeframe. My background is real estate related. I was a builder and a developer, more of a builder than, than a developer, but single family homes for a lot of years. And then 08 came and, and family came and, and I started looking for ways to leverage my real estate background. And that's kind of where I got into to insurance with a real estate focus to it. And um, which subsequently, you know, I didn't know which asset classes necessarily to function on. And, and one thing led to the next and, and been with, um, TBM multifamily now for going on about seven years and uh, with a strict focus on multifamily, I would say that, um, you know, 90% of my clients are multifamily. Now we do do other asset classes because, you know, it's, it's not always that people just own multifamily. You know, I have clients with multifamily and storage and retail and office and all the various other asset classes, but the vast majority of what we do is multifamily. And I think we bring a real level of expertise and experience to the equation that, you know, helps control cost. It helps get deals done when people are purchasing them. It helps get claims paid a lot of times. I mean, there's just, um, when it comes to multifamily, there's very few situations and scenarios that we haven't come across with or dealt with. And most of the time on a relatively recent basis. And so that's really at the end of the day, our value add to clients is, you know, you're not having a conversation um, to an agent about the, the rights in a lot of different industries. You're talking to somebody that can speak the same language that you do. We can talk OMs, we can talk Fannie and Freddie lending requirements, we can talk, you know, again, any aspect of multifamily we can, we can speak to and, and kind of all talk the same language. And so that's, I think, what we bring to the table. 
That's awesome. That's awesome, Brian. And, and one of the things I always like to say, Brian, is that like, like, for example, taxes, right? So when we are assessing the properties, you know, we purchase and we typically can uh, intelligently assess that, okay, uh, based on the new purchase price and knowing the millage rate that's going on uh, in, in that uh, sort of the state, you can typically come closer to knowing, okay, what your ultimate uh, taxes are going to be. But insurance is such a specialized thing that uh, as we all know that all of the multifamily investors are mostly looking out of state right mm -hmm. and they wouldn't have the intelligence to know okay what what are sort of the let's say the wind and the rain and all the different factors that come into these uh, premiums right so working with a knowledgeable broker like yourself is such a, uh, a key that there's no, uh, you know, replacement to it, right? So uh, with that, Brian, uh, help us get started in terms of what are the different uh, type of risk assessment factors and uh, different insurances that come into uh, this industry, right? whether, you know, we all he hear the common place about, okay, the fire and dwell insurance and things like that, but there's a lot more that comes with all of this, right? Could you help us uh, get our viewers uh, understand, like, what are the different types of insurance uh, that uh, come in the multifamily uh, industry? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it, at the most basic level, you have three core coverages for a multifamily asset. You've got the property insurance, which protects the physical asset itself against fire, against wind, um, against all of those types of perils. Then you have your liability insurance, which is a third party insurance. Think of it slip and falls, any negligence type issues that could occur, you know, at a property. And then, you know, that policy itself is usually limited to a limit of $1 million for each occurrence. Mm -hmm. And then $2 million for the entire year. So all of the claims through the course of the year can add up to $2 million, but no one claim can go over a million. Mm -hmm. Once it does, you have a policy that kind of backs that up called your excess liability policy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your excess liability policy is one where your lenders are going to have some input into what they would like to see from an excess standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, but then you also have to look at it and, and figure out what might be best for you. I mean, and it just depends lender by lender, Fannie and Freddie, they have their guidelines based upon size and types of buildings. But, you know, you could see a $3 million, $5 million, $10 million or more excess policies mm -hmm. um, to either protect the asset itself or portfolio of assets, just depending upon whether the policy is for a single asset or for a group of assets. So it's just just very dependent upon that. And then, you know, outside of that, you have, you know, various other coverages that might come into play. Flood insurance, if there's a flood risk there or if it's in a floodplain, tenant discrimination type insurance is, is, is something to, that we've seen a little more of here lately with some lawsuits in that area. And, um, you know, and then you can get into all your various other, you know, crime coverages, all your workers comp, all your other things that are typically more like property management centric, but sure. can definitely come into play. Sure. So now uh, regarding the main uh, fire and dwell uh, coverage uh, there, Brian, like what are some of the factors that uh, at the high level come into picture? Like, let's say if I uh, uh, call you saying, hey, Brian, uh, I'm assessing a property, uh, one, two, three Main Street. Uh, what are some of the things you would need uh, uh, on a basis to just kind of understand like what, what, what are we looking at? I would say geography where it's located. Construction type, is it frame, concrete block, or, you know, masonry, non-combustible, meaning no wood in the building, you know, mm -hmm. whatsoever. 
the wiring, are we dealing with aluminum wiring or remediated aluminum or copper wiring? You know, mm -hmm. usually anything in the early 70s, I think it's 73 and before actually, there's a, there's a good chance that there could be aluminum wiring in play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you need to know whether or not that wiring has been remediated or not. Um, and if so, and here's a real key point, I don't, you know, we don't want to go down the rabbit hole here initially, but exactly how was it remediated? You'd be surprised how many times I see people purchasing properties that don't really understand what methodology was used to remediate it. You, and you do need to know that. And I would say the other factor is roof age. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this is becoming a big, big issue in that most carriers do not want to offer coverage on a roof over 15 years of age. Mm -hmm. without factoring in depreciation into the equation. Interesting. Um, uh, can, can you clarify on that, uh, Brian? Mm -hmm. Because uh, as we all, uh, I mean, mostly know that uh, typically the roof shingles, uh, I assume, uh, you know, maybe we are primarily referring to roof shingles here, yeah. uh, you know, the sloped uh, shingle roofs, for example, right? Uh, like, as we know that the shingles typically at a minimum come with a 20 year or a lot of times 30 year warranties. And uh, uh, you describe here that, uh, you know, the insurance uh, companies do not want to deal with uh, you know, roofs that are maybe more than 15 years uh, old, right? Can right. you can you help us understand some of the details behind yeah, it? Absolutely. So when a carrier offers coverage, they're either going to offer it on a replacement cost basis, which means no depreciation is factored in. So if your 15-year roof is gone tomorrow, the carrier is going to come in and give you a brand new roof. Mm -hmm. As opposed mm -hmm. to actual cash value, which does factor into depreciation. Like you said, if you if you have a 16 year old roof, so the carrier is not willing to offer a replacement cost on it. Mm -hmm. And um, even though the manufacturer said it's a 20 year roof, when that roof does get damaged, and needs to be replaced. The carrier is going to come in and basically only pay you on the four remaining years left on that roof or whatever the depreciation factor might be. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of times buyers, um, they look at it and say, well, the roof's kind of old anyways. I'm not that worried about that. That's fine with me. The problem is, is it's not fine with most lenders, and it's definitely not fine with any sort of Fannie or Freddie loans. Their actual requirements don't allow you to have any sort of valuation on an actual cash value. Um, and so that has presented a lot of problems over the last couple of years as carriers have become more stringent on that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the people, you know, will... Um, They'll be in the process of purchasing a property. The seller might tell them, oh, I think it was replaced 10 years ago. If the municipality doesn't maintain permit data, for example, and then there's parts of Tennessee where they don't because it's, mm -hmm. um, um, I only know some recent experience. I'm not trying to throw Tennessee under the bus, but there's parts of Tennessee where they don't maintain residential per re-roof permits. And so mm -hmm. no one's able to really get the age. And then the next thing you know, somebody determines that that roof might be 17 or 18 years old and now you've got lender compliance problems. Sure. Mm -hmm. with, with, um, believe it or not, it's not so much of an insurance problem, it's more of a lender problem. Um, right. If that makes any sense. No, no, absolutely. And I think I can hear you almost saying that uh, if the correctness, whether it's permits or the contractor paperwork that seller may have maintained, if it's not there, I think the lender is probably going to rely on whatever their their lender inspector or the property condition report, uh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, tells them and they'll, they'll probably go to that. And the 
and I guess perhaps the new buyer wouldn't have a choice but to comply with the lender request because we, he obviously has no choice. <laughs> would you agree? Yeah, I, I would. I mean, I'll give you a real world scenario that happened last year. You know, it, it was a, um, I think it was $35, $40 million purchase on a pretty, it was actually two properties, pretty, pretty, but kind of operated as one, kind of a large asset. The seller had told them that the roofs had been replaced 10 or 12 years ago, so nobody thought we had any sort of problems. And mm -hmm. then right before close, they go into doing appraisal on the property, and the you know the appraisal will never tell you what age it is. They simply kind of estimate that sure. they think there's mm -hmm. so many years of useful life left in the roof. Sure. But in this case, um, they ran into a property manager, and they asked them about roof age, and the property manager on, on, at the property said, um, well, you know, yeah, these things, I, I, I think these things were replaced about 20 years ago. Oh, wow. And then, lo and behold, that became the data point. Sure, sure. Now, ironically, what, mind you, we're right up against closing now, and all of a sudden, the insurance does not comply in, in any way, and, all, and there's big problems. Their money's gone hard on the deal, and there's, you know, we've got to figure out a solution for this. Well, the solution I came up with was I went back to Google Earth and downloaded time-stamped images that pretty much showed you the ages of the roof. Mm -hmm. But believe it or not, that was not even enough to fully convince the lender, but it did convince the lender enough to come up with a workaround, which gave them a period of time to prove the roof age to them. But it was a stressful time because the only other option, if they couldn't prove it, was, you know, there were, there were, different phases of when the roofs have been replaced, but it was close to a three to $400,000 roof replacement that they were maybe going to have to do if they couldn't right. prove the age of the roof. And so it's, it's a big, big deal. Yes. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, talking about different, uh, you know, factors, uh, like roof would be one, uh, right, mm -hmm. Brian? But what about like, let's say the age of the building and uh, more importantly, the location and stuff like that? Like, could you maybe share as to, you know, how, how they uh, factor into all the, all the different premiums that uh, uh, we have to look into? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I like to kind of, when, when I'm asked these questions, I like to say, hey, imagine if you were an underwriter mm -hmm. and you've got two properties that you could insure, you know, would you rather insure that brand new property that was just built in um, Kentucky, for example, that doesn't get a tremendous amount of what, you know, wind, hail type claims, not, you know, it's not catastrophic type claims, Sure. you know, or would you rather insure a 1970s building in coastal Florida? <laughs> and everybody goes immediately, well, of course, I'd like to insure the new building where I'm not subject to, to weather-related claims. Sure. And that's really kind of how underwriters look at it. You know, you know, age is a factor that they look at and they just consider that the, the risk for fire, the risk for damage, the condition, the underlying elements of the building have probably weathered and deteriorated and there's potentially going to be claims come out of that. And geography is the other big factor. You know, I mean, sure. it's... When I got into this business, it was writing coverage in Florida was the most difficult part of the country to write mm -hmm. coverage in sure. and also the most costly. And for the past couple of years, it has been North Texas, Midwest, those sorts of areas that um, are by far the most difficult. There's very few carriers in those spaces that are really offering affordable um, coverage. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and in response, you know, what the carriers have done is 
where Florida back in time started implementing the percentage wind deductibles, 2%, 3%, 5% to account for the, for the hurricane exposures. They started doing those same things in the Midwest over the last couple of years to where you can have percentage wind deductibles. And there's still agents trying to wrap their head around that because when you go down the, when you go down the path of trying to des, you know, design coverage for catastrophically exposed properties, Mm-hmm. There are a lot of factors that have big, big impact. Like, for example, um, if you have a 5% wind deductible, mm-hmm. would you, you know, would you rather have that 5% apply on a per building basis? Mm-hmm. Or would you rather have that 5% apply on the total insured value for the property? Well, those on paper, those look like the same things. I have a 5% wind deductible. But what does that 5% apply to? Because sure. they're really big numbers. You know, five percent on a million dollar building is fifty grand. Five percent on a ten million dollar property is five hundred. I mean, it's it's two completely different numbers that I'm surprised. I see some pretty experienced and sophisticated people that have never dealt with these types of uh, of deductibles before that don't thoroughly understand that. Sure, sure. And and similar can be stated, Brian, that a lot of times, you know, like, uh, I mean, what you're describing as the uh, wind deductible, I have seen uh, in my personal experiences that uh, sometimes they allocate these percentages to like a sewer replacement uh, and things like that, right? So uh, how does that work? Like, is it more on a geographic basis as far as the wind deductible is concerned? Uh, yeah. or, or what is more pertinent? Because I'm, I'm trying to like think, at, think of it uh, like, let's say from, uh, you know, other investor standpoint that if they are approaching a different insurance broker, what should be the right way to understand this? And what, what are some of the questions we can ask so that we are, get, we are making sure that it should be the right amount of coverage we are getting? Right. Well, I, I would say in, in, in response to kind of um, um, understanding like where these deductibles apply, you know, anything coastal, be it Louisiana, coastal Alabama, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, you will always see those percentage wind deductibles come into play. And as I talked about a few minutes ago, now you're seeing in areas like North Texas, Missouri, Oklahoma, those sorts of areas that those are starting to apply. So I would say number one, geography is a big factor. I, for example, I don't see percentage wind deductibles in Arizona. You right. know, you will mm-hmm. see you will see a standard ten thousand dollar what they call all other peril deductible because they just mm-hmm. they're not that concerned about getting hit with sure. hail or, or mm-hmm. anything. Um, but you know, but when you get into those sorts of areas, they mm-hmm. are. But it's it's a geography based. Um, application of these deductibles. Sure. And it's also on a carrier by carrier basis. I mean, it just kind of depends. There's certain carriers that mandate percentage wind deductibles in areas that historically you haven't seen them. And there's mm-hmm. other carriers that might be able to accommodate something. But I will say anything coastal, always percentage wind deductible. And for the most part, it really feels like anything in the Midwest right now, you're really starting to see those types. Sure, sure. And, and that percentage basis, Brian, is that off, off of the cost of that building? Uh, or, or is, like, is that the replacement cost uh, of the building itself, like from a roof standpoint? Uh, or, or, how, or how does that percentage work? Yeah, think about a property that has 10 buildings, mm-hmm. each valued at a million dollars each. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you have, and let's pretend that that property is located in Oklahoma, 
-hmm. and a hailstorm comes through and it damages not all but some of your buildings okay mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then for each and every building they're going to apply what let's we usually shoot for two or three percent okay but let's just use five percent because the mass is e sure. easy on it so mm -hmm. if the which is a common deductible too so if it's five percent of the billing value Mm -hmm. then the deductible for a wind for a hail claim in those areas would be 5% of $1 million, that building's mm -hmm. value, $50,000. And that would be for each and every building. I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. As opposed a cheap, a less expensive way to do it, the carriers will offer you a better rate on it would be, well, yes, your wind deductible is 5%, but that 5% applies to the total insured value of ten million dollars, right? Which mm -hmm. would be five hundred thousand dollars. So now, in that same scenario, if you were only have like one building damaged, you know, mm -hmm. you could either be dealing with a fifty thousand dollar deductible or a five hundred thousand dollar deductible. But if you're not paying attention to the details, if you're looking at two competing quotes, you might glance at them and say both are five percent. Right. Right. They're not. It's five percent of what? Correct. Mm -hmm. And and that's one of several other factors with these percentage deductibles that need to be looked at. I mean, another one to think about is, well, does that deductible apply on a per occurrence for each event? Sure. Or does that apply just one time for the entire calendar year? Sure. You, sure. you would prefer it to be just once. So if you get hit with one hailstorm and then lo and behold, the next day another one comes through you don't want to restart your deductible again. Sure. So you would shoot for a, you know, but Trump, but there are various, you know, there are situations where you can back in um, 04. Now, you know, I was not in the business at this time. I was actually building houses and investing in property. Um, we had three hurricanes come through Florida. Wow. Hmm. That same event happened today. That would be, and, and you didn't have a calendar year deductible. That would be restarting the deductible for each and every claim for each and every storm excuse me right. you would just start over again and and those numbers can get very very large sure I mean, sure you, you know right and and depending on the areas uh, uh brian like how do we distinguish between like let's say the strong strong winds or the storms or the named hurricane and things like that how how does that kind of factor into it, that is and that is where you get to what the carrier is willing to offer okay um you know the, for in Florida, for example, you can have a 5% hurricane deductible mm -hmm. or two or three, but again, we're just using five, for example, you can have a 5% hurricane deductible. And that would mean the 5% only applies to a hurricane. Mm -hmm. So when the tropical storm comes through that the 5% doesn't count that falls under the all other peril deductible, mm -hmm. you know, so that would be um, as opposed to a 5% named storm well guess what tropical storms are named storms sure. so now that mm -hmm. same tropical storm would fall into that five percent deductible which you don't want okay mm -hmm. you know and then they have gotten to the point with some where it's five percent wind so anything wind related is five percent it, it's it does get to you know a real deep analysis as to what coverage is being offered in the quote right and right. you really need to, and you really need to understand 
you know, what that is. Absolutely. And, and, and when we are, let's say, in the hurricane season, Brian, that, I mean, we typically see that boys, I mean, sometimes you literally have these hurricanes coming back to back within like literally a couple of weeks sometimes, yeah. right? I mean, it is a very scary time for a lot of large multifamily owners as to, boy, which way the, uh, you know, the uh, path of the uh, storm is going to shift. Is it coming inland or is it coming coastal and things like that, right? So my question, uh, Brian, there would be is that these deductibles, do they uh, sort of, are they based on a calendar basis or is it something that they reset based on each named storm uh, that happens or is it based on just how the carrier views that? Well, it's how it's it's the the details of the quote. That's what I was talking about sure. a minute ago. <laughs> if you have a calendar year, I'm just going to keep it simple: a calendar year wind deductible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Once you've met that deductible, mm -hmm. then you don't have to pay that deductible again. Okay, I'm not going to get down into the weeds. There are situations sure. where they impose a minimum for each storm or whatever, but let's just for arguments say today say that when you're under a calendar year deductible mm -hmm. once that deductible has been met mm -hmm. you don't have to restart each each time sure as mm -hmm. opposed to a per occurrence deductible and that is for each storm each new event oh, i got hit with hail last week you know and we were working through that and then lo and behold we got hit with hail again well guess what you're now paying two deductibles two very large deductibles sure sure mm -hmm. even though they're going to fix the roof just once <laughs> you know, I mean, and that's the, you know, that's the, that's the frustrating. Sure, part. sure, sure. Now, moving on, Brian, right? Um, we all talk about why multifamily investors and owners choose a newer B class, meaning like 80s and newer, sometimes 90s and newer type of properties. And that has direct correlation to the you know, what sort of components of the buildings uh, are currently within that code at the time, whether that's mm -hmm. uh, compressed PVC or copper mm -hmm. from a plumbing standpoint, wiring we can talk about and things like mm -hmm. that, right? So we, we just spoke about the wind side of things, right? Mm -hmm. But can you maybe speak to some of the uh, hidden perils that, as I call it, is that, you know, the old plumbing or the old yeah. electric and things like that. I mean, I, in fact, uh, I mean, not to get too deeper into this, but I personally have seen, uh, like, we, we all call two by four as a certain measure uh, of wood, but mm -hmm. a modern two by four is different than what a two by four was in 60s. I mean, believe me or not, but yeah. that's, the, that's a fact. That's as true. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the wiring, I'll talk about polybutylene pipes, but I won't have as much to probably talk about. It's just kind of clear cut with polybutylene. You'll, you'll see exclusions in policies a lot of times. Sure. Mm -hmm. For polybutylene piping, the problem with polybutylene piping is that you will never know you probably have a polybutylene problem sure. unless the seller tells you or unless you learn about it. And, um, or when you finally ultimately have a claim and then find out that your policy excludes polybutylene prices. So we always sure. try to guide everybody to, to not have a polybutylene exclusion in their policy. That's one though, that when you're not dealing with somebody that knows multifamily, I see that one slip through time and time and time again. Mm -hmm. The big factor that you deal with on, on all properties pre-1973 is the, is the wiring that we've, that we've, sure. that we've, that we've kind of talked about. And then you ultimately get into some of the electrical panels you need. There's, there's a lot of panels like federal, 
specific stat block panels that a lot of carriers aren't willing, you know, to, to cover. Sure. And so um, I, I think it was that kind of hitting what your question was. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and I think it's prudent for, I mean, a lot of, uh, I guess, owners, uh, whether it's on the buyer's or the seller's side, to look at some of those tab lock boxes, I guess. I mean, if you're planning to sell, perhaps it's, it's prudent to pretty much start thinking about replacing them. Or if you are a buyer, you, you probably want to start budgeting some CapEx uh, for some of those items because lenders are going to require uh, you to uh, definitely make that as a required item to replace them, right? They are. I mean, I, I am right now, I just brought on a client a few weeks ago and I do not write this property, but they've asked me to take over this property because they have a real big issue with it. And the big issue is, is that they went out and tried to secure coverage. They looked at a, from another agent, they looked at a bunch of different quotes. They picked the lowest price quote that they, that they could. And that quotes specifically um, excluded stab lock panels and unremediated aluminum. And lo and behold, they come to learn out, they come to learn in this property that it has stab lock panels and it's full of aluminum wiring. And, wow. and they're like, what do we do? And we looked at a variety of different options with it for them. And what they have finally decided that they're gonna do is they're gonna go through a major CapEx expenditure to replace all of those panels. I think they viewed it as both a, a cost issue, a coverage issue, and also a safety issue for their, for their, you know, for their tenants. And so they're gonna go through you know, replacing all of those at um, which point, you know, we're trying to work something out with the carrier right now where we can get them coverage why they do this. Because as their policy, and again, I want to say not our agency, not anything we put in place, but what they have right now, if they were to have a fire, I, I don't think there's any chance that it would be covered. Wow. Because mm -hmm. they thought they had one thing, the carrier thought they were writing another thing, and the carrier stance is, that they don't have any ability to offer coverage on, on that. And so we're trying to work with them to get them through this. And the only thing that anybody could really come up with was remediating it. Sure. And, um, and that's ultimately the path that they're going down. Sure, sure. Now, uh, um, Brian, typically uh, during the course of the year, I'm sure you see a lot of uh, claims, uh, you know, large, small to frivolous, things like that, right? Uh, could you maybe uh, give a sense of, um, you know, what are the types of claims you see? Like, uh, uh, you know, is it more the smaller claims or is it something, uh, give us some idea as to, uh, you know, what sort of claims uh, you see come through? Yeah, you know, and I think claims is an interesting topic right now because I am seeing the um, claim frequency, the number of claims skyrocket here during COVID. And interesting. That's, mm. that's going on. They're more, you know, liability type claims, but nonetheless, the, it's amazing to me the, the, the number of claims that we have received over the past couple months. From a property, again, this is going back to your three primary coverages. Sure. Mm -hmm insurance for the asset itself, property insurance, and then you have your liability insurance. On the property side, I would say the thing that I see time and time and time again are these small stovetop fires. And they can range anywhere from 10 to 50,000 if they're contained in terms of claim, or they can burn the whole building down. You know, I mean, it becomes sure. much larger. But but if they are contained loss, damage to one, two units or whatever, maybe the one that started and the one above it or whatever, you know, those types of claims are 
really hitting owners hard, but and hitting carriers hard also because you know the you know your losses dictate ultimately what rate you pay in insurance. Sure. And mm-hmm. so um, you know the way that people are dealing with these stovetop fires. I'm seeing fire suppression systems, those cans that you put underneath the microwave ovens or the range top hoods. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a couple carriers that um, they're not mandating it, but the way that they've designed um, their their coverage, they're almost forcing owners to install these stovetop fire suppressors. And that is strictly to stop these stovetop fires. Sure. What I'm speaking to exactly is, I have a carrier that will come give you a relatively good rate on mm-hmm. a property, mm-hmm. but they'll also tell you that they will credit you a very large sum of money if you will install these fire suppressors. Well, magically, the amount of money that they will credit you happens to be the exact cost of what the fire suppressors will be to install them in, in sure. your units. So at the end of the day, two ways to look at it. Either they're buying the fire suppressors for you or they're forcing you to install fire suppressors. It depends, how you, it depends how you look at it, but I'm seeing those a lot. If, if you're not looking at so much from a safety and a premium standpoint, um, um, I see um, a, a lot of owners imposing renter's insurance mm-hmm. on their tenants. Right. And that's what I was about to go next as well, Brian. But before we move there, uh, speaking of different credits that are offered, right? Um, what, what do you see in the industry? Is it like the, let's say the sprinklers or auto lock doors? Uh, yeah. You spoke about the, uh, you know, the fire suppression systems. Uh, yeah. And, you know, sometimes we have seen in common hallways, uh, brightly lit signs with, uh, you know, fire extinguishers and things like that. Could you maybe help us understand some of the best use credits or, or perhaps what are easy for uh, owners to do to get the best uh, credit in their insurance? Yeah, without a doubt. I would say, you know, with regards to to the renter's insurance, ironically, I'm going to kind of dip back to that again, because if Mm -hmm. you install, if you impose a pretty strict renter's insurance program, Mm -hmm. then a lot of these smaller losses that occur Mm -hmm. are going to be covered by the renter's insurance, which Mm -hmm. keeps them from hitting your carrier. So your loss experience looks better, but that also allows you as an owner to begin looking at higher deductible policies. Sure. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, if you're all other peril deductible on a property, you're fire deductible mm-hmm. on, a, on, a, on a property, you know, um, you could begin to look at $20,000, $25,000 type options on that, mm-hmm. which will be Lower less rates to pay. Sure. And you're mm-hmm. doing that because the way you've designed the renter's insurance program, you're pretty confident that the vast majority of those claims will be paid for. And, and you know, and so that's that's one. The other big one is a sprinkler building. I mean, mm-hmm. sprinklers are that's probably where your biggest credit is. The unfortunate side with sprinklers is it's kind of tough to go back into a garden style 1980s type product uh, and, sure. and justify installing. Exactly. So I, I don't so much look at that as a credit, mm-hmm. you know? um, but really I think overall maintaining your property, okay, um, at all levels is what's going to drive your premium down. I don't think there's any magical like one thing that you can do mm-hmm. because each and every carrier is going to look at it a little bit different. So what, what do I mean by that is, you know, you, you, you keep your properties well maintained. 
you'd keep the trip hazards on the on the sidewalks you know you get those ground down you repair those th those sorts of things you make sure that all handrailings and everything are secured sure. you know the that the property honestly from a cosmetic standpoint it's just kept up it's painted it's it's fresh for my clients that do those things very stringently mm -hmm. they do not have as many claims as other clients i have that don't want to do anything Sure. And and I think that unfortunately in our society today, there there are a lot of very real claims. People do get hurt and people do things do happen. Sure. But there are also a lot of professional claimants that are out there. Right. And so and especially in this environment with people, a lot of people are losing their jobs and such. And the next thing you know, you know, oh, I was walking across the sidewalk carrying my groceries, and lo and behold you know, I tripped on the sidewalk that the roots had popped up that section of sidewalk by an right. inch. Right. Well, you don't have a lot of leg to stand on when that picture's taken and you see that there is a trip hazard there. You know, right. or you know, I tripped coming down the stairs and I reached over to grab hold of the handrail and the handrail broke off because it wasn't properly secured and now I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm again I don't want to make out like all claimant, you know, all claims are frivolous. But you would be naive not to think that a significant percentage of claims are not, you know, professional claimants. And so I sure, like to sure. say, don't don't just make yourself a target. You know, I mean, you, you you really need to keep everything in good, you know, good working order. I think a lot of times when um when you have maintenance calls, you know, on properties leaking air conditioners, you'd be surprised how many slip and falls on vinyl floors I see from <laughs> leaking air handlers. Sure, sure, sure. You know, um, you know and, and really, when you read through these and you see as many as I've seen, it, it almost kind of paints a mental image for you. And it's almost like, you know, I don't think the tenants are feeling very well respected in a lot of these scenarios. You know, the, the this is dripping, the roof's leaking, the AC handler's, you know, um, you know leaking. And, and I just think, you know, maintaining that stuff decreases claims and I wish I could quantify that but I could just tell you from looking at it from our side it's absolutely the case. Sure now mo moving on Brian like uh, I mean I think you were alluding to it but I want to ask you that question right now is uh, the right now one of the biggest uh, sort of uh, hot button topic is uh, you know what is currently the impact of COVID that's going to happen uh, I mean I feel that with the amount of uh, you know precautions or perhaps some of the cases that some of the buildings may have gone into uh, i mean i can al almost see that the insurance industry is going to pretty much rewrite their books and policies in terms of what the language the exclusions and the preventions that the building owners will have to uh, you know sort of comply with uh, to make sure that uh, you know any of the related claims are uh, sort of uh, honored uh, on a timely basis. Can you give us a sense of what you are seeing uh, across your desk right now as we are kind of going through this pandemic? Yeah, and I'm probably going to have to get in my soapbox for a little while, so take me off of it if I go too far down the rabbit hole, okay? Because <laughs> this is one that we could have a podcast on alone. But sure. Here's the reality, and I'll just try to take my opinion out of it, and I'll just give you real world what we're experiencing. Sure. What we're if you would have asked me one week before the COVID quarantine happened, mm -hmm. I would have told you that the multifamily insurance market was in a very difficult spot. 
Okay, mm -hmm. rates were going up. We tend to think of things as either being a hard market or a soft market. His sure. Historically, we've been in a soft market. It started to stabilize a couple of years ago. A lot of people weren't getting decreases, but they weren't getting big increases. Mm -hmm. And then over the course of the last year, people have been getting increases left and right. That's where the market was pre-COVID. Sure. Then COVID hit. The first thing everybody thought about was, well, how's my insurance policy going to respond if my rental income drops off significantly? Right. Um, they unfortunately learned that that was an excluded cause of, of loss in you know, pretty much all policies across the board. Um, unfortunately, I think, and there's nothing more I want to see than a claim get paid. I don't get impacted when a claim gets paid. I want them paid. I have happy clients when they get paid. But at the end of the day, they're only going to pay what they're contractually obligated to pay. And mm -hmm. pandemic was an excluded cause of loss in almost all policies. And you're seeing a lot of um, um, litigation around that now that might go somewhere. I don't think it is, but I'm not a lawyer. It's just there's a lot of litigation. Well, that litigation to an insurance carrier is a cost. No different right. than replacing your roof that blows away that cost is going to get shoved into the system sure and that's going to be reflected in rates moving forward right now mind you the reason i brought up the market pre-covid was the market was in a bad spot pre-covid now you're shoving even more cost into the equation system. right mm -hmm. and then i'm starting to see a lot of losses start to occur um mm. robberies thefts shootings, assault and batteries. Mm -hmm. well, insurance companies respond. And a lot of times you're starting to see assault and battery exclusions become by no means standard, but very prevalent. Like mm -hmm. a lot of carriers are trying, especially if you have high crime scores in an area, you know, if your property sure. might not be located in the most you know, safest parts of town. And so, you know, all in all, the net of it is the market was in a bad spot. Now you've got a lot of costs being shoved into the system. Mm -hmm. You know, the only way that that could be offset is if we had a huge market rebound because these insurers do invest into the markets. And a lot of, you know, um, if they start to see a return on their investments, sometimes the rates won't increase as much or maybe they'll even drop a little bit. But there's so much uncertainty in the financial world right now that I don't think anybody's banking on that occurring. Sure. So I think it's almost all going to be reflected in rate increases. And I think more than anything, this is kind of a situation where I'm telling clients left and right, help me help you. Because right now, underwriters are in the driver's seat when it comes to offering insurance. Sure. Three mm -hmm. years ago, the carriers were lining up trying to write coverage everywhere they could. They were willing to make concessions. They were willing to do things. Now, not so much. They're being very picky on their properties. Um, you know, they, if, if it's got a lot of age on it, they don't like it. If it's got old roofs, they don't like it. You know, there's, they're coming up with reasons to not offer coverage. And a lot of times that ends up with you only having a couple options, you know, at the end of the day. And then it, I hate to say the, the price is what it is. I don't mean to say that at all, but it, it is kind of that situation. You know, I mean, you might sure. not have that many options. And so, you know, I'm trying to tell clients, especially in situations where there's a purchase, you know, mm -hmm. or even renewals, help me help you. Help me present a case to this underwriter why they should insure you. Get your losses. Make mm -hmm. sure those losses are up to date. Um, you know, talk to me about what's been done to the property to improve it, to maintain it. 
you know, don't tell me you think the roofs are 10 years old. Tell me those roofs were replaced in, you know, 2012, you know, but mm -hmm. it, it's unfortunately like any of us need any more to do in a, in a deal or in renewing a portfolio. Right. But if you really want to control your cost, you really need to help me present the property in the best possible light that I can. Great and, advice. Great advice. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, um, and, and hey, I, I get it. Insurance is the least important part of a transaction. And if you're managing a portfolio assets, it's, pro it's probably the least fun part of your job. I, 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 I understand that. But if you don't get um, um, on top of it and realize what you're dealing with, you're just going to be subject to what's going on in the market. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and actually, you know, Brian, uh, in fact, I, I like to, you know, also point out that although it's not a fun topic, but uh, in terms of, you know, trying to, you know, understand the details and the code and the negotiation, but to me, it's so, so central and so important to get the right coverage as, you know, as we all know that the cheapest coverage may, uh, or the cheapest premium may not give you the best coverage. And boy, they, I mean, as we all know that when you really need the insurance, you want to make sure you have enough insurance and the right type of insurance also as well, right? Now, yeah. speaking of this, uh, Brian, that I, I, I always like to, you know, try to understand, you know, that what should be our process? Like, let's say if a, uh, we are looking at an offering, uh, you know, uh, offering memorandum from a broker, and we see some of the numbers from sellers uh, that perhaps may be quoted on the, uh, uh, you know, on the OM. Is it uh, okay for us to like kind of go and maybe trust those numbers, or at what point we should engage you to understand that are we looking at the right numbers, or perhaps will those numbers uh, and the premiums be different for the buyer? Uh, or can you maybe share some insights yeah. into that? Unless, you know, so OMs, we're talking about new deals, unless that seller has renewed his insurance in the last two or three months, mm -hmm. then you, you need to throw that number in the trash can for your own underwriting. Interesting. It, mm -hmm. it, does, it does not apply. Now, there have been times over the years where we tried to advise our clients that you can't always trust the number in the OM, but you know what? in the soft market, what I was going back to, to be honest with you, it usually got you in the ballpark of where it was. Nobody was getting stung by it. Even though we were saying, oh, you know, let's, let's get your own coverage. Let's tell you what the real cost is. It really, for the most part, kind of worked. And then for the last couple of years, it hasn't worked so well. And now in the last couple of months, it does not even apply in, 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 in any way. Um, it's it's almost like an irrelevant number. What number would you like like to see? And, you know, because a lot of times too, you know, you might be buying a singular property and it might be wrapped up in a larger program. Sure. Mm. They might even be allocating an insurance expense to that property that might not truly reflect what the insurance costs on that are going to be. And so point being this, do not pay any attention to the OM number unless that seller can provide you a certificate of insurance and maybe a proposal that says, well, this is just what I renewed it at. That number might be somewhat reflective, okay? But even, I don't even think I would trust that. And I would sure, say, sure. you know, you really need to engage us or your broker or whoever, because one of the biggest services that we bring to the table, you know, I always tell all of my new clients, anybody I talk to, 
we don't look at me as your insurance agent, okay? Look at me as part of your due diligence team. Absolutely. And so when you're mm -hmm. looking at an asset, let me look at that OM. Let me tell you things you might not be thinking of or might not just be top of mind right now, like some of the things we've talked about, wiring, roof edges, locations, sure. all of these factors, you know, um, but more than anything, we can look at it. We can talk to the market. We can give you an idea of what those insurance costs are going to look like for a purchase that you're currently involved in. And we can do that usually very quickly. And, um, and, and that's how most of our clients use us. I mean, you know, we call it indications in our business. So, I mean, I work on several a day where I have clients looking at a property and they want to know what the insurance costs are. And the toughest thing about it right now is sometimes they don't want to believe what I'm telling them right now. You know, they're looking <laughs> at that property and they're seeing $320 a unit. And I might be looking at it and saying, hey, that number's $420, $450 a unit, whatever it might be. Sure. Nobody wants to hear that. But we understand the sums of money that are in play. Sure. And when we just tell you a low number to make you feel good that day, you know, it is hurting some deals. There are deals that are not happening right now because of insurance costs. I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. And that's why I was asking that question. And it seems that with the COVID and the sort of the mass underwrite, that's probably going to transpire in the coming months. I would expect that having the right insurance premium would be so central, just like you budget for taxes, uh, mm -hmm. you know, what changes are going to be. Pretty much, I think insurance is going to play a much, much important role. So I couldn't agree more with you there for sure, yeah. you know. Yeah. So good. It's been a great advi advice and a lot of great uh, uh, things you have covered, Brian. So I appreciate your time today. Uh, pl please share with the listeners how they can, uh, you know, reach you and learn more about your company. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. And I've enjoyed it too. This has been great. Um, yes, I can be arranged to give you my email and, and my phone number, but um, and Schimmel is a tough name, so I'll spell it out, but it's um, bschimmel at tbmins.com. So it would be B S H I M E A L L at T is in Tom, um, B is in boy, M is in Mary, and INS is in, in insurance.com. And my phone number is 321-303-2840. Great advice, uh, Brian. I appreciate your time today. And viewers of the podcast can also log on to premiumcashflow.com uh, where, uh, you know, uh, expert guests like Brian come on. We also have uh, several deals where if you would like to passively in, uh, in, uh, invest in some of the opportunities, uh, kindly register using invest with us button. Uh, we can jump on a brief phone call and understand, uh, you know, what goals you have and what you're looking to do. And we can certainly uh, help you in any regard. So thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to, uh, you know, having you on on some uh, future podcasts where we can discuss more details uh, on some other topics as well. So uh, thank you for your time today. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.